0: This is The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again.
1: Welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare, and we're going to talk about some of the issues that we face uh, in the general public today. And we certainly have an expert with us, and we're delighted that we've got the Director of the Dallas County Health and Human Services, Dr. Philip Wong, and he's been doing great work here in the Dallas area and throughout the state, really, through some of the work that he has done. And we wanted to talk first with him on a topic that is certainly growing and is almost hitting epidemic proportions and that's the use of e-cigarettes and vaping. Let's start, Phil, with the first question. What is the public health perspective related to e-cigarettes, their use, and vaping?
2: So, you know, I mean, e-cigarettes are really relatively new, and it's, uh, you know, they they come in different shapes and sizes. Uh, You know, they have these batteries and heating elements, and eat heat this liquid and aerosolize, Uh, the liquid that, you know, usually has nicotine in it, which is an addictive drug, the addictive uh, drug that's in regular cigarettes and those things. And and so there has been, you know, some people were wondering, okay, how how does this compare to regular cigarettes? And, uh, you know, I think from the start, we've always said we don't know what the long-term effects of these things are going to be. You know, if it were only people who smoked regular combustible cigarettes that switched to those, and that might be okay for those people. But we don't know what the big population health effects and long-term effects, and now as we're seeing even short-term effects. So uh, what we're seeing is this dramatic increase in youth use of these e-cigarettes. You know, I mean, I think between 2017, 2018, it was uh, estimated a 78% increase in youth uptake of the e-cigarettes. I think in 2019, estimated over 5 million U.S. middle and high school students using e-cigarettes in the last 30 days. So, I mean, what's very concerning is, um, you know, this whole new generation now of youth that are getting addicted to nicotine, and that is very concerning. And, and so, from the public health perspective, that is certainly not a good thing. Um, we're seeing some severe illness associated, even with short-term use of these products. And then, you know, other problems that have been seen with these: there's been batteries have exploded, um, you know, causing serious injury. These are they're definitely not harmless, benign, and it's and we really don't know what the long-term effects of these are.
1: In your answer, you touched on a variety of things, but one thing you did mention, even though we don't have total research on the long-term effects, there are some short-term impacts. So as you look at the experience in Dallas County related to severe respiratory illnesses, how has that been in relation to the use of e-cigarettes and vaping?
2: Yeah, well, this is you know what's really been this new development this uh, since like August or you know a little earlier this year, uh, where we've seen severe respiratory illness um, associated with the use of e-cigarettes and vaping products. In Dallas County, we've had 53 confirmed or probable uh, cases of patients hospitalized in Dallas County facilities. And again, we're seeing dramatic impact in youth. Our median age of these patients, 22 years, ranging from 13 to 52. About a third of them have been under the age of 18 and almost half under the age of 21. And again, these are very serious respiratory illness that we're seeing. These are previously healthy teenagers, who then are requiring intubation and being put on mechanical ventilation. And tragically, we just reported our first death related to this uh, respiratory illness. Um, I mean, this was in a 15-year-old. The, the person did have some other underlying health conditions, but again, this is a teenager that died as a result of this exposure.
1: Looking at it from a little different perspective, Because I was down in Austin and I heard you when you gave your testimony in the Senate interim hearings where there were other people that testified there, adults, that used these products. And they said it helped them wean themselves, if you will, from combustible products or regular cigarettes. So from your perspective and a public health perspective, what do you say about people that genuinely say it helps them quit using combustible products.
2: Well, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, if it were just people who currently use combustible products that just switch to those, well, that might be you know, is a better thing for those persons. But they are not approved by the FDA now as a, as a quitting smoking aid. Uh, the data on uh, how effective they are. It's still unclear because what a lot of the studies are showing is actually a lot of people who try to use these. What they wind up using these the e-cigarettes for, you know, during times when they can't smoke regular cigarettes, and they wind up using both products or having dual use. So it's then it's a bad thing if people who might have otherwise quit smoking combustible tobacco products and are now using both products and are maintaining uh, their addiction and uh, use of the combustible products, you know, because there are other proven methods that are effective at helping people quit. Uh, So, yeah, these are not approved and can't even be marketed legitimately as uh, helping uh, with quitting smoking.
1: You know, recently we heard from the current administration and specifically the recent FDA action uh, related to banning some of the flavors that are in e-cigarette products. And some of those flavors, just by looking at the names of them, would certainly be things you would think that young people might want to try or might like. Now, I think menthol still is not one that they want to banned. But what do you think, at least of the recent FDA action, to try to ban some of the flavors in these e-cigarette products?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that anything that it will help reduce Use of these products certainly is a good thing. I mean, you know, you know, some of the flavors that they have are like bubble gum and gummy bear flavors. These are not targeted at older adults. I mean, a 50 year old person doesn't wake up one morning and say, hey, I want to smoke gummy bear uh, e cigarettes. Uh, they are targeted to kids. And I think a lot of the dramatic uptake in the product that we've seen are related a lot of these flavorings. So anything that can be done to reduce that is a good thing. I think there is still concern now that, uh, yeah, the menthol is still going to be allowed and as well as tobacco flavoring. So, but we're hopeful that this will have impact on reducing use.
1: We want to thank you today, Phil, for being with us. And we really appreciate your perspective from a public health viewpoint. And I hope our listeners have at least gleaned from you there are serious short-term effects, and the results are still coming in related to long-term. Thank you for your leadership, and thank you for what you do for the public health in our community.
2: Well, thank you. My pleasure.
1: Coming up next, Kelly Rodriguez is going to talk to us about global diabetes. She's from Parkland, and this is one of the most prolific
3: diseases in our culture today, and she's going to unpack it next on the human side of health care.
0: Healthcare is changing rapidly. The national debate is escalating and will be a big focus of this year's presidential campaign. We're here to help unpack these important topics, along with over 90 member hospitals across North Texas who are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co host Thomas Miller.
1: This is the human side of healthcare. And we're going to talk about something today that is a very serious chronic illness that we deal with, not only here in North Texas, but candidly throughout the nation, and it is diabetes. And we are certainly glad that we've got with us Kelly Rodriguez. Kelly is the director of Global Diabetes Program, Parkland Health hospital system. And Kelly, thank you for being on the show today.
4: Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well,
1: you know, when we look at uh, diabetes and we look at chronic illness and we look at many of the things that we have to deal with, can you just start out and tell us what is the global diabetes program that's at Parkland Health System?
4: Certainly. Um, The Global Diabetes Program refers to a multidisciplinary specialty team. Uh, It's responsible for providing and coordinating effective diabetes care and education across Parkland Health and Hospital System, from within the hospital to our specialty services, which includes our diabetes and foot wound clinic, through to our primary care clinics and into the community in Dallas County.
1: So the program uh, has a variety of services Could you expand a little bit and tell us when was the program launched and talk a little bit about some of the services that are offered?
4: Certainly. Um, The program was launched in 2013. Uh, It came about as a part of the Texas Medicaid Waiver Initiative to develop sort of innovative care models for Medicaid and low-income, uninsured individuals with diabetes. Um, Parkland also recognized too that it had a large number of people living with diabetes in its health system and so saw this as a priority. And so the Global Diabetes Program, or GDP as we call it, includes a number of services um, and some of those are you know, diabetes consultation and edu- education services for hospitalized patients within uh, the hospital that have you know, complex diabetes care needs. Uh, we also address outpatient specialty services within the diabetes and foot wound clinic for patients who are living with complex diabetes management um, needs as well. Um, We also have the Texas uh, Medicaid waiver initiatives um, that have included things like foot exams, A1C testing and reduction, retinal eye screening, amongst other metrics. We also do a lot of professional training um, to our Parkland personnel across the system and we've developed a number of committees really to try and drive best practice approaches across our primary care network, our specialty clinics and also our hospital personnel. Um, And we've also developed a large number of education initiatives and programs and materials including our um, diabetes website um, that enables us to have information in English and Spanish and have an outward facing um, opportunity with the community.
1: You know, Kelly, you mentioned something in your answer there that that really triggered a thought. You mentioned that Medicaid 1115 waiver. We know on the provider side how important that is. But for our listeners, what you touched on is funding that helps people through this Medicaid waiver, through what we call DISRIP projects, delivery system reform incentive payments, receive care they otherwise would not. So this is another great example of how the Medicaid 1115 waiver is helping all of our hospitals, but in this case, in this example, Parkland, help fight chronic illness. As you implement this program, what are some of the providers needed within the system to offer this care? Certainly,
4: diabetes is a multidisciplinary disease, Um, and so we're blessed to um, have medical and nursing leadership, advanced practice providers, including um, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, clinical pharmacists, social workers certified diabetes educators that often include nurses and dietitians, and of course, important business staff. Uh, diabetes requires both clinical and business personnel to work together to make um, care possible. And, you know, this team, along with our primary care workforce of providers and multidisciplinary team members, have the goal to really sort of help to try and transform diabetes care in Dallas County.
1: To help listeners kind of comprehend this, you're one health system among many that serve the people of North Texas, but how many patients with diabetes, I'll say pre-diabetes, currently receive care at Parkland? Certainly. We
4: have... Over 50,000 patients in our diabetes registry that we know have diabetes and about 35,000 of those are patients that we say are active patients that are being seen within the healthcare system in the previous sort of 18 months to 24 months. And we also have around 16,000 in our pre-diabetes registry um, that, you know, access care across our primary care specialty clinic services as well as our hospital environment.
1: With any program, and especially as we deal with health care and we deal with illness and we deal with outcomes, we want to have good metrics. What do you feel in your mind are some of the key achievements in this global diabetes program?
4: I guess our primary achievement um, related to, you know, achievement of the Texas waiver outcomes. Uh, we've been doing this, we're about to enter year nine, and we've been fortunate to be able to have met our metrics across each of those years. I think the other successful piece is, as a part of the uh, waiver model, it was really about designing a care delivery model that was effective, uh, not just at the local level, but across the entire system. And so we've been fortunate that this program has enabled the expansion of the same kind of model across other clinical areas, such as oncology, behavioral health, you know, really creating a system approach to um, disease other collaborative opportunities have also um, arisen uh, with uh, groups such as the American Diabetes Association where we've been able to participate in quality improvement initiatives that have really helped us to deliver care more efficiently, more effectively um, and resulting in very positive health outcomes including an initiative related to insulin management and we were fortunate to receive an innovation award for that um, just impacting um, a large number of patients uh, within our system and I think another important area has been medication adherence, uh, that becomes an enormous challenge in a community that has um, its own social challenges. And so medication adherence, we've been able to develop a score for medication adherence to help not only our patients living with disease, but the care teams better be able to assess um, the impact of medications as well as the prescription and behavior-taking methodologies of our patients who, who are prescribed treatments.
1: You know, as you look at the work you're doing in dealing with diabetes, We've touched on a lot of the good things and the metrics, et cetera. Is nutrition and healthy food part of this initiative, or is that separate?
4: No, I think it is an important part of diabetes care and and management, Um, not only just having knowledge of what is nutritious foods, but I think more importantly the access to such nutritious foods in many health systems, I think we're starting to look beyond our walls for how we can impact diabetes care. And I think nutrition is one of those areas where we're starting to look at things like community gardens, um, as well as other access points for people to be able to have access to healthy foods. Uh, Even though we live in in an urban environment, there are so many parts of um, Dallas County and beyond North North Texas County where we are finding that people are in a, a health desert in terms of food
1: as we look at the epidemic that we're really facing in our community related to diabetes, what would you say are some of the largest challenges we still face?
4: I think successful diabetes outcomes we're recognising goes well beyond the provision of just quality health care. It must be inclusive of addressing really the lived world needs of of the people that we're trying to care for with diabetes. By that I mean social determinative health factors that really drive self-ability. I think we're excited um, by the strategic plan that's being developed as a part of the 2019 Dallas County Community Health Needs Assessment. I think many communities are really doing in-depth assessments of their communities to identify where the gaps are, and I think we're identifying that it's not just healthcare gaps, but it's a lot of those social determinant factor gaps. You know, shelter, accommodation, uh, you know, all the different aspects around food access, community um, resources. There's so many parts to this that impact an individual's ability to provide care. So health systems are needing to think and deliver care beyond their walls and start to create a more community-minded focus, uh, which is a rewarding piece, but also challenging. It really requires all of us to work together collaborative to make this successful.
1: You know, Kelly, I think that was a great answer. And, you know, it, it really underscores the name of the show, The Human Side of Healthcare, and how there are so many key elements, key components, key constituents stakeholders that have to work collaboratively, especially when you deal with the social drivers of health and its impact on chronic illness. It has been a delight, Kelly, to have you on the show. Thank you for your participation, and thank you for what you do every day to improve the health of our community.
4: Thank you
3: so much. And we have two topics coming up in our next segment. We're going to put feet to our faith. What happens to used medical equipment? You would be surprised, not only locally, but also around the world. And also a special community program that one person working at Baylor, Scott & White put together because she saw the need and filled it. That's all coming up next on the human side of healthcare. Stay with us. We'll be right back on 1080 KRLD.
0: This is The Human Side of Healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the Radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again.
1: This is Steve Love back with The Human Side of Healthcare, and I'm delighted I've got Dawn Sewell with me, Director of Faith in Action Initiatives at Baylor, Scott & White Healthcare. Dawn, we're delighted to have you with us. Thanks very much, Steve. Glad to be here. You're doing work. Related to faith and action. Can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about those initiatives? Sure.
5: I, I use an elevator speech, which was basically saying to the person that knows nothing about what we do, that we are, in essence, a philanthropic arm of Baylor, Scott & White in both the resources, supplies, and equipment, as well as people. In other words, we send our recyclable and repurposed supplies around the world to struggling clinics and hospitals, And we also encourage and send our own clinical people on short-term medical missions trips around the world. And so, in a respect, faith in action basically means we're people of faith, and that's all kinds of faith. It's not simply the Christian side of things, but multivariate faiths. And they can express their particular faith in ways of service to mankind beyond the walls of our own hospitals, and that's the key. It's outside of our
1: hospitals. Well, that is un, uh, unbelievable. That is such a good mission. How did this originate?
5: Uh, ten years ago, l- last month, I started. So about ten years and six months ago, uh, we had uh, a phone call and it was uh, Joel Allison, the CEO of Baylor Scott and White. At that time, Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas and the Baylor Healthcare System. And uh, Joel said to me, Don, would you consider helping us start a, and he used the term, clearing house. Would you help us start a clearing house for our old medical equipment? Because the ugly truth is hospitals across America actually uh, throw away and discard a lot of equipment that could be potentially repurposed and used somewhere else around the world. It's actually quite easy to discard it because... That does not require extra storehousing, extra contacts to places around the world, extra shipping, and it becomes for many a a bit of a headache. So uh, lots of hospitals have a small group of people, of goodwill people close by that pull up their trucks in the back alleys of the hospital and take a small amount of the equipment. We, on the other hand, have a concerted effort with two Uh, warehouses, which we lovingly call the slurks or the second life resource centers, one in Waco and one in Dallas. The one in Dallas is about the size of five basketball gym floors and the one in Waco about 30, 40 percent that size. And we have a large staff, so it it takes courage on the part of uh, the executive leadership to uh, enact this and put it together. And Joel Allison had that courage 10 years ago, and that's how it all started.
1: Well, as you look back on 2019, Can you highlight some of the initiatives Mm -hmm. and accomplishments of of what
5: you did? We're glad to. In uh, 2019, we were able to send out the equivalent, if we were to purchase it today, of about $7 million worth of stuff. We depreciate it down as we send it, of course. But that went not only overseas, but locally. About 40% of all our material goes to nonprofits right here in Texas. And uh, it may be a particular Rotary Club has a Tuesday night uh, dental chair open and uh, it's done by somebody free gratis pro bono. And so we help in those cases. Uh, So you have the service organizations, you have uh, nonprofits that are humanitarian nonprofits, and you have uh, groups of faith, people groups of faith, churches of all sizes that have some kind of a, of a ministry to uh, locals, folks that aren't as privileged and they're marginalized. They don't have the opportunities that we have. And so uh, we're glad to assist them with all kinds of supplies. A hospital will have, obviously, waiting rooms. So that means we'll even have furniture. We'll have desks, chairs, exam tables. We'll have beds. We'll have all the way down to unneeded sutures and gauze and, and syringes and Those are the staples of what we have and what we utilize in places around the world. The further you go away from uh, affluent America, the greater the needs are. Uh, I can show you hospitals around the world that are in large cities of a million people, and they have no working x-ray machine. They have no sonogram. And our equipment is gold to them one doctor from Peru came and saw a large amount of those uh, surgical instruments and looked at me and said, whee! He was so happy and proud just to be able to see that.
1: When a disaster occurs, like tornadoes, or like uh, several years ago, I know Joplin Mm -hmm. got hit hard and parts of Oklahoma also do you respond to those types of situations?
5: Yes, sir, we do. I wish we could do even more. That would be the first thing before I start talking about the things we've accomplished. But I would love to even be more involved. And we cooperate directly with people such as uh, uh, International Red Cross in, on the foreign scene, uh, National American Red Cross. Uh, we work with uh, uh, Salvation Army, other goodwill groups. So we don't try to go alone on these disaster relief situations. And yes, uh, we've helped in Joplin, Missouri. We sent both a chaplain who had the critical stress management background as well as supplies to uh, assist in the needs in Joplin. Uh, by the way, I, Joel and, and the executive leadership hired me in December of 2009. And in January of '10, here comes the Haiti earthquake. And so Joel calls and says, guess what? We want you to coordinate disaster relief for the system, too. And that's since it goes hand in hand with the fact that we have the supplies. And so our first major disaster was uh, with Haiti, of which we sent a 40-foot container of supplies, crammed full uh, more than once, and we sent to various nurses and doctors. Uh, we luckily were able to partner with also a, a, a person of means that had a Learjet here in town, and quickly got material into country within five days of uh, the, the struggle.
1: That's remarkable. So let me ask you this. We've got many listeners, and uh, how can they get involved? How can we get involved to help hospitals mm-hmm. give back to the community? Uh, that's great. We uh, would gladly receive supplies
5: and, and even volunteer support from people in the community. Actually, five other hospitals outside the Baylor system, give us supplies. They believe in us. They know we are going to be good stewards of that, and uh, they're involved. Uh, locally, a, a faith group or a, a service club, anybody that would like to be involved in separating our materials and stocking them and having them prepared to be sent overseas, we welcome that. And I uh, can give you contact information uh 214-818-1080. and uh, we would be glad to receive supplies uh, from people that have something to do with the area of medical work.
1: Thank you very much, and we really have appreciated having you on this show.
5: And thank you, and on the part of uh, our Office of Mission and Ministry, of which Faith in Action is part of that, we are grateful for this expression of uh, providing awareness to the community. Thanks very much, sir.
1: Thank you. Hospitals, in conjunction with many community organizations, are doing good things in the community. And I'm glad that we've got Nikki Shaw, Vice President of Community Health for Baylor Scott and White with us today to talk about a program that she pulled together so that we all work in a very collaborative way related to initiatives in the community.
6: So Connecting the Dots is a full-day event that um, we started about four years ago, and it brings together community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, governmental entities, universities, of course, healthcare organizations and hospitals with an intent and purpose to really connect in a meaningful way, meaning that Um, It's not just a networking event. We have case studies that we do collaboratively with frontline staff and the community and faith-based organizations. We have breakout sessions and um, different panels that are really focused on solution finding. So it's definitely a way for people to see each other and uh, catch up on different topics affecting our communities, but it's a event that's really outcomes driven. And our goal with the event is really to come out with in our specific communities across Dallas, Tarrant, Collin, and Denton counties to have a strategy and synergy with the community organizations to really drive change.
1: So how did this originate?
6: So as I was driving up and down 35, going to all of our various entities across the state of Texas, we and we're building our community networks um, with organizations, I started to realize that a lot of the organizations themselves didn't know what the other um, organizations provide. So there was a gap in information. And the other thing we've heard from our frontline staff was that. You know, they're in the day-to-day grind. They're referring patients to get to these social services, but they didn't have the time or the ability to make those meaningful connections to find maybe other opportunities to collaborate. So, you know, simple solution, get, get, get everybody in the same place at the same time with a warm connection, not just over a video chat or a phone call.
1: You know, I was at a meeting earlier today, and someone pointed out very aptly, mm-hmm. uh, it's one thing to collaborate. But it's just as important to coordinate. So it sounds like you're going up and down 35. You got that vision. We need to coordinate.
6: Absolutely. There's, I think one of the most meaningful things that have come, that's come out of this event has been organizations that maybe have historically worked with each other don't necessarily know all the services and the breadth of services they offer. So you're reducing waste in the system as well by finding those opportunities to synergize with these organizations. And I think the other thing um, that has really come of this is the healthcare systems have really come together. This used to be um, sponsored by only Baylor, Scott & White, but we've pulled in Parkland, Texas Health Resources, and Methodist to also be our co-sponsors.
1: So it's truly a community effort, people working together. Thank you very much, Nikki, for being with us. And we hope that connecting the dots will continue for many years to come.
6: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
3: We continue our team vaping profile next with Dr. Karen Schultz from Cook's Children's in Fort Worth, who is on the front lines of treating way too many teens who have damaged their lungs from vaping. We'll hear from the director of pulmonology next on the human side of healthcare.
0: continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environments. This is The Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller.
1: And welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare. I'm Steve Love and we're going to talk about a topic now that really needs our listeners' attention. And this is dealing with electronic cigarettes vaping, and some of the things that we need to know about this. We could not have a better expert than who we have as our next guest. We have Dr. Karen Schultz. She's a pediatric pulmonologist at Cook Children's in Fort Worth. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Dr. Schultz, let me start by asking you, in People that you have seen or treated or been exposed to, what can you say generally are your thoughts related to electronic cigarettes, vaping, and the impact, especially on adolescence health?
7: So I think the biggest thing is that this has been a really unrecognized epidemic that has dramatically increased in the last couple of years. Um, Our data from 2017 said that only about 12% of high school students uh, had vaped, and now that's up to over almost 30% um, of students have vaped.
1: You know, as, as we look at vaping and as we hear accounts throughout the nation, it's one thing that many of the vaping products are purchased, and maybe they're purchased at a retail outlet, and they're used, and they do include nicotine, But there are other people that are using these same devices, but they're putting other products into them other than vaping products. Have you seen that also as a problem, such as cannabis?
7: We do see that fairly frequently in our teens who are admitted, have had some cannabis exposure with with their illnesses.
1: In reading some of the information at the Centers for Disease Control website, Many of these products have been in the form of flavors. Now, I do know recently we heard from uh, the current administration and also from the FDA that they want to start eliminating or regulating the flavors, except maybe menthol. Do you see in the patients you've treated, did flavors or maybe the devices looking like thumb drives, et cetera? Was that something that you think maybe enticed some of the young people to try?
7: I think it makes it more easily tolerable if it tastes good to teens. I mean, nobody really likes the taste of tobacco. And for them to have the option of bubblegum flavor or mango flavor, uh, it just makes it easier to go down, so to speak and keeps them coming back for more because then it's the cool thing to do and all the other kids are doing it.
1: I heard you on a podcast the other day, and I really was impressed uh, how you also looked at this with a very open mind and were very positive. And as you said a few minutes ago, 30% have tried vaping or electronic cigarettes. But on that podcast, you mentioned, let's also talk to the young people about 70% 70% on not doing this, and let's try to find a silver lining. Do you want to expand on that a little bit?
7: So the reality is that there's a large number of teens who are vaping, but the majority still are not vaping. And for a lot of a lot of the teens, I think the message is starting to get out, although we continue to see patients present to the emergency room with lung injury from vaping.
1: So as you look at to the future when you treat and I know each patient is different but as a young person listeners out that are hearing this program that are adolescents or maybe even middle schoolers or potentially even younger or freshmen in college can this do permanent damage to your lung and breathing capacity as a pulmonologist are there things that can occur that cannot be reversed
7: so at I don't think we have enough data to really answer that question well. So far, our follow-up patients have actually improved their lung function, so that is a good sign. Again, vaping is fairly new in the world compared to cigarette smoking, and it took us a lot of years to realize just how damaging cigarettes were to our lungs, so I don't think that we've heard the end of the story regarding e-cigarettes at this point.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I know the long-term studies and research is not in. Let me ask you this, and I realize that your specialty is pediatrics, but for adults who maybe have smoked for a long period of time with combustible products uh, that say the vaping and the e-cigarettes have really helped me step down. Even though there's still nicotine, I can reduce the amount of nicotine and I'm using it as a form of smoking cessation. Do you feel that's a benefit of electronic cigarettes uh, and vaping?
7: I do, and that was really what it was designed for, was to help people who were addicted to nicotine to try to cut down on the amount of nicotine. Um, There are some studies that have shown it's been fairly beneficial, and then there are other studies that have shown uh, that people just have changed forms of nicotine rather than actually cutting down.
1: So, in some ways, for adults at least, you know, it helps. You know, I was talking to another physician the other day, and they said, you know, that, that is good and positive, as you pointed out. But also, you have to bear in mind, don't start as an adolescent. Don't experiment with this because the nicotine is addictive, and you don't want to put yourself in that situation. You know, as we look at the, and and we're not getting into politics at all on the show, we we stay politically neutral, but we've talked to some state legislators, uh, Dr. Schultz, and a couple of them have said they want to make this really an agenda item for the 87th legislative session, which will be January of 2021, and they're not trying to prohibit it But what they're trying to do is better regulate it and try to keep it out of the hands of young people if possible. So if you were advising people related to how you think it should be regulated, do you have any thoughts on that, on what we should do and how we help protect our young people?
7: There was a new law that went into effect in Texas on September 1st that e-cigarettes, and to other tobacco products, you now have to be 21 in order to purchase them at a convenience store. So that was a step in the right direction. The problem with that law that went into effect is that it punishes the teen who buys it and not the person who sells it. So it'll take me a whole lot of punishing a lot of teens in order to Have an impact, but if we can start addressing the convenience stores that are selling the products and having consequences for them, then I have much more impact down the road.
1: You know, I think that's great advice. And I was actually in Austin when the Senate actually had a a great hearing and they brought in experts and they brought in people to talk about vaporing and e cigarettes. And in the interim charge hearings, many people said, precisely what you said. We need to really regulate the suppliers of where this is coming from. We're not saying ban it, but we're saying let's regulate it in such a way that we help protect our young people. You know, I've asked, yeah. I've asked you some questions about e-cigarettes and vaporing. What question should I have asked you that I didn't? From your perspective, not only as a pediatric pulmonologist, but someone who truly cares about the health of our community?
7: So I think one of the big questions that we still don't really know the answer to is how are we going to treat a whole other generation of individuals that are addicted to nicotine? Because we have some of these products like Nicorette gum, other brands of gum and patches, but we don't know how effective they are or how to use them in teenagers. Uh, And I think that's something that we're... We, as healthcare professionals, are going to have to learn going forward.
3: And there's more of Dr. Schultz's interview that we weren't able to include here. So, if you're interested in this vaping topic, check out our podcast. It's online 24 7 on your favorite podcast app. Just search for the Human Side of Healthcare podcast.
1: And please join us next week. We begin Heart Month, and we're going to have with us Dr. Ben Levine talking about the best way to take care of your heart. We'll see you next Sunday at 1 on the human side of health care.